Okay, it's great to see everyone. And um, it's just been great for me to walk through Hebrews and to look at um, a number of the things that we've been um, that we've been talking about, and even for us to think about um, to think about these issues with persecution as we look at Somalia and we talk about other countries around the world. And, uh, and, and for me to keep coming back to these passages in Hebrews and just remembering how the, uh, the church there was in the midst of persecution as well. And so we wanted to just take um, a couple of minutes. Well, you can, you may be able to see, we want to take eight minutes and uh, just have this uh, again, overview of the book The letter to the Hebrews. The author of this letter is anonymous, and people have wondered for a long time whether Paul wrote it or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos, but really we just don't know. In chapter 2, we discover that the author had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Jesus, so we know that this letter is anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We also don't know who the audience of this letter was or even where they lived. The author knows them really well, and he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the storyline of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, about how Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, about how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received the Torah and they made a covenant with God, where they built the tabernacle, where the priests offered sacrifices, and also about how they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The author just expects that the readers know all of the details about these stories. And so most likely the audience is made up of Jewish Christians That's where the name of the letter comes from. We also have clues from chapter 10 that this church community was facing persecution and even imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. Some in the community were walking away from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. And this explains the purpose and the structure of this letter. First, there's a short introduction, which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people and events from Israel's history. Jesus is first compared with angels in the Torah, second with Moses and the Promised Land, third with priests and Melchizedek, and lastly with the sacrifices in the covenant. And the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing that Jesus is worthy of all their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this, it's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to abandon Jesus. So let's dive in now and see how this all unfolds. The elevation of Jesus begins in the opening sentence of the introduction. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So the author's saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself to Israel. He then makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. These metaphors are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the Son. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd, like why angels? In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. 
And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. If Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels, how remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die? In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. In chapters 3 and 4, the author moves on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses, who led the people of Israel through the wilderness and built the tabernacle. Jesus is also the leader of God's people, but in him we see not the builder of just a tent, but of all creation. Then the author retells the story of how the Israelites rebelled against Moses in the wilderness and they lost their chance to enter into the rest that God offered them in the promised land. And so here comes the second warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? We also are in a wilderness-like environment where we have to trust God for the future rest in God's new creation. So let's make sure that we don't rebel like Israel did in the wilderness and lose out on God's gracious offer to enter his new creation. In chapters 5 through 7, the author then compares Jesus with Israel's priests that come from the line of Aaron. Their role was to represent Israel before God and to offer sacrifices that atoned for or covered over the sins of the people. But, he points out, the priests were themselves morally flawed people, and so they constantly had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for everybody else's. Something more was needed. And so he then argues that Jesus was that something more. He's the ultimate priest. But Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. Rather, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek that mysterious priest king from ancient Jerusalem, and he appears in the stories about Abraham. We also find in Psalm 110 that the messianic king from the line of David will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the author's whole point is this. Jesus is the ultimate priest king. He's morally flawless. He's eternally available for his people. And so he's superior to any other mediator between God and humans. And thus comes his warning in this section. To reject Jesus is to reject one's best and only chance to be fully reconciled to God. So don't do that which transitions us into the last comparison in chapters 8 through 10. The author shows how Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice superior to all the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. Those sacrifices had to be offered constantly, both daily but also yearly on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered his life once and for all, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And so the author warns the audience from walking away from Jesus. It's like turning your back on a gracious offer of God's forgiveness. Why would you do that? Jesus' sacrifice is permanent, he says, and it's the foundation for the new covenant spoken of in the prophets, where all sins are forgiven. So now that the author has elevated Jesus through all of these contrasts, 
This final section is one big challenge to follow Jesus. So think big picture. In Jesus, they have found God's very word. In Jesus, they have hope for the new creation. Jesus is their eternal priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so now they should follow all the great models of faith found throughout the story of the scriptures, and they should remain faithful to Jesus, trusting that despite whatever hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people. That's the basic flow of thought throughout the letter, which the author calls right here at the very end, a brief word of exhortation. Here's a couple of extra tips for reading this letter. Whenever the author quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, which is like every other sentence, stop and go look up the reference and read that quotation in its original context. And sometimes you'll be puzzled, but more often you'll see all kinds of extra cool connections that you would never notice otherwise. It's totally worth the effort. You should also just know that these warning passages they're going to make you uncomfortable, and that's kind of the point. They're not there to make you afraid. They're there to show you that rejecting Jesus is foolish because he's so awesome. These warnings all serve the larger purpose of the letter, to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy. And that's what the letter of the Hebrews is all about. So we're, we're up to chapter eight here in uh, Hebrews. And I thought probably a great place would just be for us to start and read that together. It's, it's not a very long, 13 verses. And so I'll just read for us Hebrews chapter eight. Now, the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the, in, ho in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest to also have something to offer. Verse 4, now if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, uh, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion for a second. For he finds with him, uh, he finds fault with him when he says, we're in, in verse eight, eight now, for he finds fault with him when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the, on the day when I took them by the hand and brought and to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be, a, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach uh, each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Or I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready 
to vanish away. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray as we look at your word these next few minutes that you would be honored. And we pray that you would open our hearts and that we would uh, hear from you. And Lord, we find that we would find uh, ways that we can be obedient. And Lord, that we can be a light in this world today. I pray that you would uh, bless and keep me from error. Lord, protect me. I pray that the words that come from my mouth, Lord, would be what you would have me to share this morning. And I pray that you would just bless and uh, Lord, help us as we uh, seek to apply these things and to obey, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we can see as we, we start with that uh, video there, and if you're watching later on and uh, you're catching this, we just, we, uh, we watch the Bible Project uh, Overview of Hebrews. It's available on YouTube. You can just type in Bible Project Hebrews, and uh, if that's not part of this recording that you see, then it, uh, it's, it's going to be available for you. You can, you can watch that and then come back and uh, pick up here. But as we move into chapters 8 through 10, we are moving into a, a section of the letter that focuses on sacrifice, and it focuses on the covenant. As a matter of fact, this chapter, chapter 8, is, is what the writer is really uh, opening up this whole new section, but he's still in a, kind of in the middle of a thought as he uh, was ending chapter 7, right? That's why he would say, in chapter 8, verse 1, now the point of what we are saying is this, right? He's continuing on this thought that he's been making. And we saw last week that the, the case that he was making was that the, pro, the high priest would need to hold this position permanently. That's in chapter 7, verse 24. We need to hold this position permanently, that he would be able to save to the uttermost. That's in verse 25. This high priest would be holy and innocent and unstained and separated and exalted. All of those things in verse 26. And then chapter 8 opens with this incredibly powerful statement where he says, and we have this kind of priest. We have this high priest already. This one that we desperately need is Jesus. And he lists out these things, and, and not just these things that we see listed in chapter, uh, the end of chapter 7 in 24, 25, and 26, but it also says here in chapter 8 that Jesus is seated alive at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He's able to save to the uttermost because he's not dead. He's still alive, and he's seated right there with God, always making intercession for us. We hear other places in scripture, and that's what we want to focus on as we look at chapter 8. The author here in this chapter says two things. Jesus is a better priest, and the new covenant is a better covenant. Jesus is a better priest. The new covenant is a better covenant, right? So the letter writer makes this case. We saw that in the video as well. Jesus is uh, better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the priests. And here we're going to talk about the fact that uh, the, the new covenant that he's bringing is better than the old covenant, even though that old covenant really is what had been defining Israel uh, all this time. So we start with Jesus is a better priest in uh, verses one. I feel, feel like this we can find this in verses one through five. And in verses one through five, the writers making the case that this, this old system that they had been following was actually just a, a shadow of the reality that really exists in heaven. They had a, a picture of sacrifices, and they had a picture of an intermediary, right? They might have brought birds, or they brought sheep to the temple, and then they would have a priest make a sacrifice on their behalf, because in heaven, we have this continually being offered sacrifice that is uh, Jesus, that is 
uh, always available for us. And so they had uh, sacrifices. They had an intermediary, one that would stand between them and God. But we also see in these first few verses that these pictures that they had were incomplete. As a matter of fact, if we turn uh, a couple of chapters over into chapter 10, so Hebrews chapter 10, 3 and 4 says this, but in these sacrifices, this, this, is, this is incredible. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for, this is in verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So they had this whole sacrificial system that was about the removal of sin, and yet the scripture writer says that the, the sacrifices of bulls and goats could not forgive sin. For them, it was just uh, was offering after offering. The priests had to offer for themselves, and then they had to offer for other people. They were just constantly in this system, and that system was a continual reminder of their sin. That's what we see in Hebrews chapter uh, 10, 3 and 4. This is a, a sacrifice, and it's a yearly reminder of their sin, but not with Jesus. With Jesus, it's different. Jesus is a better high priest because when he offers himself, he offers a sinless sacrifice because he had never sinned. We saw these things back in chapter 7. Last week, he was holy. He was innocent. He was unstained. He was exalted. He was the perfect priest offering the perfect sacrifice. And that's why Jesus was a better priest. The second part is this. The, the, the new covenant is a better covenant. And I think that's in verses six and seven. The new covenant is a better covenant. The ministry of Jesus is better and the covenant is better because they're based on better promises. Verse seven uh, actually said that whole system was flawed before. And we know this, he says, because we, uh, we, if it hadn't been flawed, it would not need to be replaced. That's in chapter eight, verse seven, right? If the covenant had been flawless, we wouldn't need a new covenant. And so the question is, why was this system flawed? The system was flawed because it was a copy. And the copy was put there to keep people in the frame of mind of their need of God. So the, the idea was not bring a sheep and we'll sacrifice the sheep. And the sheep, therefore, the sacrifice of that sheep will somehow absolve your sin or cleanse your sin. The whole process was, I'm coming to God because I need my sin forgiven. And I'm also bringing the sheep. But somehow uh, the people, they got their focus on the system and they got it off the fact that God was the one who was actually doing the forgiving. It got to be about how well you obeyed the system. Did you wash your couch right? And did you eat the right food? And did you wear the right things? And all of these sorts of things. They love the system. That Old Testament sacrificial system, it would just see days where the temple would absolutely flow with blood. There were so many sacrifices made. But over in Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to see when we get there that the, the writer in Hebrews 10, he quotes Psalm 40. And Psalm 40 says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. And so we have a, a day of atonement and everyone's bringing their sacrifice. And the writer on the Psalm, and that's repeated with the writer here in Hebrews, the writer says, you didn't even want all of these sacrifices. The people followed the rules and they made their sacrifices, but the scripture says God didn't really want all of that. He wanted their heart. 
He wanted them. We see over and over in the Old Testament, God will say things like, did I command all of these sacrifices because I was hungry? No, I didn't ask for sacrifices because I'm hungry. I didn't ask for offerings because I need something from you. He didn't need anything from these people. The problem was they started to find their hope in the system. And they didn't find their hope in the one who was giving them the opportunity to be in relationship. So people would check off those boxes. Like I said, did, did I wear the right thing? Did I uh, eat the right thing? Did I go to the right place? Did I pray the right number of times in the right direction and with the right people and all of these different kinds of things? And they, they got their minds so much on the system that they got their mind off of the fact that they were constantly in need of God. If we think about just that little picture that was in the, the video, you see this pile of sheep corpses that are on top of the altar. We have to ask ourselves, did God for some reason need a pile of sheep corpses? Of course not. We, we need the pile of sheep corpses. Those people needed that pile of dead sheep to be reminded of this one simple fact. The wages of sin is death. When we sin, something has to die. That's what the whole picture is about. The people are checking their boxes and they feel like they're doing all the things that they're supposed to do. And all the while, they're doing these things and God has no appreciation. And so they love the law, but they didn't love the law giver. And they were proving then that the system was flawed, that they needed something else. They needed a better covenant. So we have that one, one through five, Jesus is a better priest. Verses six and seven, the covenant's a better covenant. But then what? Well, if we come to Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, what we see is the longest Old Testament quotation anywhere in the New Testament. Right, right out of Jeremiah 31, 31, 32, 33, 34, those four verses just lifted right and put here in Hebrews. And I love in the video where it says, if you want to know about these Old Testament quotations, stop reading in Hebrews and go into the Old Testament and read it in context. And I think it's great. If you want to stop and read in Jeremiah in 31, 32, 33, and just read this section, it's a beautiful, beautiful section. So let's go back to it. Let's go back to Jeremiah. We're going to spend just a few minutes, not preaching Jeremiah, but uh, just talking about why would the writer in Hebrews... He doesn't have a lot of space, 13 chapters. Why does he devote this many verses to uh, this big quotation? In Jeremiah chapter 1, starting in verse 11, this is what it says, Jeremiah 1, 11. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon the inhabitants of this land. For behold, I am calling the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against its walls and all against its walls all around and against all, all the cities of Judah. 
So Jeremiah, in the beginning, it starts with this picture that, one, God's looking over his word, but two, God's also preparing these tribes in the north, which we later find out is Babylon, and Babylon is going to bring all of this justice that is really the wrath of God that's coming, and they're going to end up taking the Israelites, many of them, off into uh, exile. And so over the course of the book of Jeremiah, that's what happens. Babylon comes, uh, Jerusalem falls, people are carried into slavery, and they live their lives there in Babylon. And in right in the middle, kind of uh, in the middle of the book there, and starting in chapter 31, 31, 32, 33, 34 in that area, God gives this incredible picture of hope. And so in Jeremiah 31, 31, that's where we start and we find our quotation that the writer of Hebrews brings forward. And so we see the, the, you know, the beauty of this promise that, that God still loves him and that there's going to be a new covenant. In 32, right, he's talking about understanding and, um, and about just how the siege is eventually going to be lifted. And then in chapter 33, two verses in chapter 33, verse uh, 20, 20, and then we're going to read uh, 21 as well. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day and the night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. So we see in the middle of this a reminder of this hope that happens in, the, in this part of Jeremiah that not only is there a new covenant coming, but Jeremiah 33 tells us that this new covenant is really tied to the son of David, to someone from King David's lineage. And so Jeremiah is talking about judgment. He's talking about a foreign power that's going to come and bring justice and, uh, and that God is going to be watching over them and that there's going to be difficulty. And there's going to be this new uh, hope, this, this, this new covenant that's going to dawn that's going to be tied somehow to David's uh, kingdom. And he says this, this new one we see back in Hebrews chapter 8. He says this new covenant's not going to be like the one when I brought you up out of Egypt, when I took you by the hand and brought you out of Egypt. This is going to be completely new. Israel's time in Egypt and how God brought them out through the exodus, that had defined who they were for centuries. But God's saying you're not going to be defined like that anymore. You're going to be defined by something new. This this going into Babylon, this going into a new slavery and this new exodus and the new covenant that's coming, that's what's going to be defining for you as a people as they go forward. That's the promise that they have from God. And so the new covenant doesn't rely on the, the people the way that the old covenant had. This is the, the part that I've taken a lot of hope in this week. That old covenant, God says, if you don't keep your part, I'm going to bring justice. And the people didn't keep their part, and God brought justice. And here in this new covenant, we see that the covenant is relying completely on God. The old system was shadow, and it was really meant to lead people to this reliance, right? There's so much. I can't possibly do it all. I need God to help me. The new covenant is not really leading that way. The new covenant's really explicit. You have to be. You have to be reliant on God's goodness and his mercy. And so we, we come to this spot, we think, why, would, why, would we, why do we have this long quotation here in Hebrews? And that's why we think about the audience again. These people are Christian believers. They're 
Hebrew thinking. They're, they're from Hebrew families and their Hebrew backgrounds. These people grew up as Jews probably, and then they came to Christ and they're living in a place where there's tremendous persecution. There's a lot of similarities to how people lived in Egypt. There's a lot of similarities to how they were when they were living in Babylon. The Jews, these Jews would look around in those places and say, the government is against us. We're not allowed to practice our religion the way that we want to. And now these people are in a spot where they're saying, uh, the government is against us. And Rome does not allow us to practice our faith the way that we want to. And what we see over and over in the Old Testament is that the Jews, what, once they came out of Egypt, what did they do? They, they just said, oh, I wish we were back in Egypt. We had so much food in Egypt. It was, life was so much easier when we were slaves in Egypt. And I think the writer to the Hebrews has pulled out this quotation because he knows that the people are at this critical juncture. And the temptation will be, fall back into the thing that you used to know. And he's saying we can't fall back into the old covenant because the old covenant didn't work. They're stuck in the spot. Will we turn back and be who we used to be? Or will we fall at the face of all this pressure that we're getting from our culture and our government? And will we refuse to be a lights that shine? And the writer, I think, is reminding them there's a new covenant and it cannot be broken. There's no hope in going back. There's no hope in being, but being just like the rest of the people that were in their community. They needed to stand strong. The old system was a shadow. And when they had come to Christ, they were no longer people who were just following a religion. Now they were people who were in a relationship with the living God. They didn't want to return to their old system when times got tough. God was with them. Better days are on the horizon because Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. That's the, that's the hope that he's giving him. He's giving these people. That's the same hope that Jeremiah was giving when he was, when he was prophesying about this new covenant that was coming. There's hope. And so even though you feel like you're in a spot and you're just being squeezed and you can't take it anymore, there's hope. There's hope. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Don't give up. This is a time to rely on God and on his promises. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in churches over the years, and I would quote out of Hebrews 10, oh, let's not be in that, let's not fall uh, out of the habit of meeting together, right? Let's continue to meet together. I think it's Hebrews 10, uh, 24, 25. Yeah, let's not neglect the habit of meeting together. And that almost always from my context here in the United States, it would be, oh, we're lazy. We would just want to stay home. We want to watch TV. We want to go to the lake, right? And when I would come to church in Malaysia, lots of people would only be off on Sunday. And so while I was driving to work, I would see them at the park and they would be jogging. They would be playing sports and they would be having fun times together as a family. And what the writer is saying is not just that it's it's about it's about laziness. There's this there's a press from the press from the culture around us to conform and just be like them, just just give up. And what he's saying is, don't give up. So, what do we do? We have a few things that I think we can do to obey and uh, how we can uh, apply this passage. The first one is this: we should realize that religion is a copy, and it will never ever save you. Religion is a copy. It will never save you, right? We're called to a relationship with Jesus, and we are never called to obey a set of rules. 
God does not love your ability to follow a system. God loves you. God loves you. When you're tempted maybe to fall into this system that, that, that shows God how much you love him, then you should repent. Because God's not looking for us just to be robots who are following along in some sort of system. He's looking for a relationship with us. Systems are good. Discipline's good. There are things that we can do that will really help us. But when we get to a place where we say, uh, did I do my Bible reading plan? Oh, yeah, I did that. Check. I did my Bible reading plan. Did I fast? check i fast did i uh, write something in my journal i did check i wrote something in my journal have i gone to a retreat i did i went to a retreat and we can look at these things that we do and say these things make me a good christian i read my bible i pray i give some money i go to church when i those things are important but when it when the list becomes the thing that defines us that's really dangerous we can't fall into this set of rules we have a relationship in our lists. If we're not careful, our list will leave God right out. I read five chapters a day. I read three chapters in the Old Testament, two chapters in the New Testament. I spend this many time, this much time praying for this many people. I have a list that I go through. And our list can be the thing that we love. We can love our system and not love the one who is trying to show us mercy. That's the first thing. Religion's it's just always a copy. It's never going to save you. The second thing is this, ask God, and I think this is a great thing for us to do this week, ask God how he would like to redefine you. Uh, the new covenant changed who these people were, right? Over and over. I, I was going to try to count this week uh, because the, when the writer uh, quotes this, this out of Jeremiah, right, in uh, Hebrews 8, 9, he says, it's not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And I thought, well, I'm just going to do a search and see how often it says up from the land of Egypt. And it says it so many times that I just gave up. This was a defining part of who they were. This was really important to them. We were in slavery and God brought us out of Egypt. It defined who they were for centuries. For centuries, it defined who they were. And God comes to this place and he says, that thing, that thing's nothing. That thing's nothing. I'm doing something new. And he just redefined who they were as a people. It wasn't just the ones he brought up out of Egypt. It was the people he was calling into relationship with him. And so the question that I'm asking myself is this. How, how has my relationship with Jesus changed me? How has your relationship with Jesus changed you, right? How does IBCBI reflect as a community of believers who are committed to a genuine walk with Jesus. What's different about us than other uh, civic organizations? What's different about us than other religions? What's different about us than other churches? Uh, I've told this story I don't know so many times, but I remember being at the old Johor Temple one day and there's a guy and they have this captain who's the captain of hell or something like that, this just a horrible, scary looking statue. And uh, uh, so I asked the guy that was there, what if you didn't have to go to hell? And he said, I'm not a Christian. And I said, I'm not talking about becoming a Christian or any kind of religion. I'm saying, what if it were possible for you not to ever have to go to hell? And he just said, I'm not a Christian. But, but what a great thing that that guy has in his mind. Christians don't have to go to hell, right? 
He, he really knew that we stood for something that was different than what he stood for. How is our relationship with each other, with the church, with Christ, how has that made us different? And if it's not made us different, what do we need to do to become different? Because if we're not different, there's, there's some work there for the Lord to be doing in our lives. The last thing is this, rest in the work of Christ. Rest in the work of Christ. One of the reasons that I am Baptist is that I believe that God is doing the work and that he is doing it well, right? There's a, something we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And I believe that, the, that, that's, that once God saves a person, that they remain saved. I believe that the scripture clearly teaches that Christ saves me and Christ is keeping me saved. I don't save myself and I don't keep myself saved. And so I find this place where I can rest in the work of Christ because he, he is the one doing the work. He died. He died once for all. And he forever lives seated at the right hand of majesty, making intercession for me. Right? I sin every day. I fall short every day. I do things that I shouldn't do. I think things that I shouldn't think. I do I just all of these kinds of things. But Christ loves me and he has forgiven all of my sin. What an incredible truth that we come to the end of Hebrews uh, 8 there when it says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Christ, when he forgives us, he forgives us completely. And I can rest in that. And you can rest in that because Christ will not fail in his work. That thing that he began in you, he will carry it on to completion. It doesn't mean that we don't have anything to do. But it does mean that even in our doing, we are sustained by the grace. And we are sustained by the mercy of Jesus like we were singing in the song earlier, yet not I, but through Christ in me. I have, I have this hope because I have Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do recognize that you uh, offer us this incredible covenant that, Lord, you didn't give us the a system whereby we need to bring a blood sacrifice for uh, our sins year after year after year. Lord, just bringing our offering and returning home still just as stained from our sin. We thank you that you made it possible for us to be forgiven, that you would literally remember our sins no more. Thank you for forgiving our iniquities. And we uh, echo what uh, King David said when he said, blessed is the man against uh, that the Lord doesn't hold his sins against them. And so we recognize, Lord, that we are men and women blessed, blessed of the Lord because of our relationship with Christ. And we pray that it is ever making us. And Lord, where we are tempted to fall into religion, into our good works, into our uh, habits and things like that, and where we're tempted to trust in our own righteousness, we pray that you would give us grace and remind us our even our ability to pray, to read the scripture, to understand anything. All of this, Lord, has its root in you. And so we're grateful for it. God, thank you for Sam and for uh, Eddie and for Mark and so many who are leading, leading in Bible studies, leading in worship, uh, bringing things together. Lord, I pray that you would uh, sustain us 
And uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless your church. We we really believe that through uh, the last 12 months, God, it just seems such a hammering on so many churches as we have difficulty meeting together, as we have difficulty doing the things that we want to do all over the world. But we believe that nothing can kill the, 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 the church of Christ. And so we pray that you would bless and that you would keep us, God, we pray for new leaders, and we pray for new opportunities, and we pray that you would be moving in our midst, and we pray, God, for people in our community to come to faith because of the work that's being done in our individual lives, and in our families, and in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces. And Lord, as uh, things begin to move back into normal, I pray that you would help us not to forget these days, and to keep the creativity, and to keep the the, uh, the, the effort that it takes to uh, let other people be involved when they can't be just um, uh, coming physically quite as easily. So we just pray that you would continue to move. So we thank you again for the opportunity to be together. We pray this week, Lord, that you'd be glorified. Would you help us to be satisfied as we're stuck in our homes? And we, would you meet with us? And would you keep us healthy? And would you uh, keep us Lord, just encouraged and satisfied and as connected as we can be? in these days. We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.